0: Section twenty three of Jean Christophe, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume One, by Romain Rolland. Translated by Gilbert Kanan. Youth One, Part Two. Eustace Euler was a little bent old man with uneasy gloomy eyes, a red face, all lines and pimples, gap-toothed, with an unkempt beard, with which he was forever fidgeting with his hands. Very honest, quite able, profoundly moral, he had been on quite good terms with Christophe's grandfather. He was said to be like him, and, in truth, he was of the same generation and brought up with the same principles. But he lacked Jean-Michel's strong physique. That is, while he was of the same opinion on many points, fundamentally he was hardly at all like him, for it is temperament far more than ideas that makes a man, and whatever the divisions, fictitious or real, marked between men by intellect, the great divisions between men and men are into those who are healthy and those who are not. Old Euler was not a healthy man he talked morality like jean michel but his morals were not the same as jean michel's he had not his sound stomach his lungs or his jovial strength everything in euler and his family was built on a more parsimonious and niggardly plan he had been an official for forty years was now retired and suffered from that melancholy that comes from inactivity and weighs so heavily upon old men, who have not made provision in their inner life for their last years. All his habits, natural and acquired, all the habits of his trade, had given him a meticulous and peevish quality, which was reproduced, to a certain extent, in each of his children. His son-in-law, Fogle, a clerk at the Chancery Court, was fifty years old tall strong almost bald with gold spectacles fairly good-looking he considered himself ill and no doubt was so although obviously he did not have the diseases which he thought he had but only a mind soured by the stupidity of his calling and a body ruined to a certain extent by his sedentary life very industrious not without merit even cultured up to a point He was a victim of our ridiculous modern life, or, like so many clerks, locked up in their offices, he had succumbed to the demon of hypochondria, one of those unfortunates whom Goethe called ein trauriger ungriechischer hypochondrist, a gloomy and un-Greek hypochondriac, and pitied, though he took good care to avoid them amalia was neither the one nor the other strong loud and active she wasted no sympathy on her husband's jeremiads she used to shake him roughly but no human strength can bear up against living together and when in a household one or other is neurasthenic, the chances are that in time they will both be so in vain did amalia cry out upon Fogel. in vain did she go on protesting, either from habit or because it was necessary. Next moment she herself was lamenting her condition more loudly even than he, and passing imperceptibly from scolding to lamentation, she did him no good. She increased his ills tenfold by loudly singing chorus to his follies. In the end, not only did she crush the unhappy Fogel, Terrified by the proportions assumed by his own outcries sent sounding back by this echo, but she crushed everybody, even herself. In her turn she caught the trick of unwarrantably bemoaning her health, and her father's, and her daughter's, and her son's. It became a mania. By constant repetition she came to believe what she said. She took the least chill tragically, she was uneasy and worried about everybody. More than that, when they were well, she still worried because of the sickness that was bound to come. So life was passed in perpetual fear. Outside that, they were all in fairly good health, and it seemed as though their state of continual moaning and groaning did serve to keep them well. They all ate and slept and worked, as usual, and the life of this household was not relaxed for at all amalia's activity was not satisfied with working from morning to night up and down the house they all had to toil with her and there was forever a moving of furniture a washing of floors a polishing of wood a sound of voices footsteps quivering movement the two children crushed by such loud authority leaving nobody alone seemed to find it natural enough to submit to it the boy, Leonard, was good-looking, though insignificant of feature, and stiff in manner. The girl, Rosa, fair-haired, with pretty blue eyes, gentle and affectionate, would have been pleasing especially with the freshness of her delicate complexion and her kind manner, had her nose not been quite so large or so awkwardly placed. It made her face heavy and gave her a foolish expression. She was like a girl of Holbein, in the gallery at Bel the daughter of Burgomaster Meyer, sitting with eyes cast down, her hands on her knees, her fair hair falling down to her shoulders, looking embarrassed and ashamed of her uncomely nose. But so far Rosa had not been troubled by it, and it never had broken in upon her inexhaustible chatter. Always her shrill voice was heard in the house telling stories, always breathless, as though she had no time to say everything always excited and animated, in spite of the protests which she drew from her mother, her father, and even her grandfather, exasperated, not so much because she was forever talking as because she prevented them talking themselves. For these good people, kind, loyal, devoted, the very cream of good people, had almost all the virtues, but they lacked one virtue which is capital, and is the charm of life, the virtue of silence christophe was in tolerant mood his sorrow had softened his intolerant and emphatic temper his experience of the cruel indifference of the elegant made him more conscious of the worth of these honest folk graceless and devilish tiresome who had yet an austere conception of life and because they lived joylessly seemed to him to live without weakness having decided that they were excellent, and that he ought to like them, like the German that he was, he tried to persuade himself that he did, in fact, like them. But he did not succeed. He lacked that easy Germanic idealism, which does not wish to see, and does not see, what would be displeasing to its sight, for fear of disturbing the very proper tranquillity of its judgment and the pleasantness of its existence. On the contrary, he never was so conscious of the defects of these people as when he loved them, when he wanted to love them absolutely without reservation. It was a sort of unconscious loyalty and an inexorable demand for truth, which in spite of himself made him more clear sighted and more exacting with what was dearest to him, and it was not long before he began to be irritated by the oddities of the family. They made no attempt to conceal them contrary to the usual habit they displayed every intolerable quality they possessed and all the good in them was hidden so christophe told himself for he judged himself to have been unjust and tried to surmount his first impressions and to discover in them the excellent qualities which they so carefully concealed he tried to converse with old Eustace euler who asked nothing better he had a secret sympathy with him "'remembering that his grandfather had liked to praise him. "'But good old Jean-Michel had more of the pleasant faculty "'of deceiving himself about his friends than Christophe, "'and Christophe soon saw that. "'In vain did he try to accept Euler's memories of his grandfather. "'He could only get from him a discoloured caricature of Jean-Michel "'and scraps of talk that were utterly uninteresting.' Euler's stories used invariably to begin with, as I used to say to your poor grandfather, he could remember nothing else. He had heard only what he had said himself. Perhaps Jean-Michel used only to listen in the same way. Most friendships are little more than arrangements for mutual satisfaction, so that each party may talk about himself to the other. But at least Jean-Michel however naively he used to give himself up to the delight of talking, had sympathy, which he was always ready to lavish on all sides. He was interested in everything. He always regretted that he was no longer fifteen, so as to be able to see the marvellous inventions of the new generations, and to share their thoughts. He had the quality, perhaps the most precious in life, a curiosity always fresh ever-changing with the years born anew every morning he had not the talent to turn this gift to account but how many men of talent might envy him most men die at twenty or thirty thereafter they are only reflections of themselves for the rest of their lives they are aping themselves repeating from day to day more and more mechanically and affectedly what they said and did and thought and loved when they were alive. It was so long since old Euler had been alive, and he had been such a small thing then, that what was left of him now was very poor and rather ridiculous. Outside his former trade and his family life, he knew nothing, and wished to know nothing. On every subject he had ideas ready-made, dating from his youth. He pretended to some knowledge of the arts BUT HE CLUNG TO CERTAIN HALLOWED NAMES OF MEN ABOUT WHOM HE WAS FOREVER REITERATING HIS EMPHATIC FORMULAE. EVERYTHING ELSE WAS NOT AND HAD NEVER BEEN. WHEN MODERN INTERESTS WERE MENTIONED HE WOULD NOT LISTEN AND TALKED OF SOMETHING ELSE. HE DECLARED THAT HE LOVED MUSIC PASSIONATELY AND HE WOULD ASK CHRISTOPH TO PLAY. But as soon as Christophe, who had been caught once or twice, began to play, the old fellow would begin to talk loudly to his daughter, as though the music only increased his interest in everything but music. Christophe would get up, exasperated, in the middle of his piece, so one would notice it. There were only a few old airs. Three or four, some very beautiful, others very ugly, but all equally sacred, which were privileged to gain comparative silence and absolute approval with the very first notes the old man would go into ecstasies tears would come to his eyes not so much for the pleasure he was enjoying as for the pleasure which once he had enjoyed in the end christophe had a horror of these airs though some of them like the adelaide of beethoven were very dear to him THE OLD MAN WAS ALWAYS HUMMING THE FIRST BARS OF THEM, AND NEVER FAILED TO DECLARE, THERE, THAT IS MUSIC, CONTEMPTUOUSLY COMPARING IT WITH ALL THE BLESSED MODERN MUSIC IN WHICH THERE IS NO MELODY. TRUTH TO TELL, HE KNEW NOTHING WHATEVER ABOUT IT. HIS SON-IN-LAW WAS BETTER EDUCATED, AND KEPT IN TOUCH WITH ARTISTIC MOVEMENTS, BUT THAT WAS EVEN WORSE, FOR IN HIS JUDGMENT THERE WAS ALWAYS A DISPARAGING TINGE. He was lacking neither in taste nor intelligence, but he could not bring himself to admire anything modern. He would have disparaged Mozart and Beethoven if they had been contemporary, just as he would have acknowledged the merits of Wagner and Richard Strauss had they been dead for a century. His discontented temper refused to allow that there might be great men living during his own lifetime. The idea was distasteful to him he was so embittered by his wasted life that he insisted on pretending that every life was wasted that it could not be otherwise and that those who thought the opposite or pretended to think so were one of two things fools or humbugs and so he never spoke of any new celebrity except in a tone of bitter irony and, as he was not stupid, he never failed to discover at the first glance the weak or ridiculous sides of them. Any new name roused him to distrust. Before he knew anything about the man, he was inclined to criticize him, because he knew nothing about him. If he was sympathetic towards Christophe, it was because he thought that the misanthropic boy found life as evil as he did himself, and that he was not a genius. Nothing so unites the small of soul in their suffering and discontent as the statement of their common impotence. Nothing so much restores the desire for health or life to those who are healthy and made for the joy of life as contact with the stupid pessimism of the mediocre and the sick, who, because they are not happy, deny the happiness of others. Christophe felt this and yet these gloomy thoughts were familiar to him. But he was surprised to find them on Vogel's lips, where they were unrecognizable. More than that, they were repugnant to him. They offended him. He was even more in revolt against Amalia's ways. The good creature did no more than practice Christophe's theories of duty the word was upon her lips at every turn she worked unceasingly and wanted everybody to work as she did her work was never directed towards making herself and others happier on the contrary it almost seemed as though it was mainly intended to incommode everybody and to make life as disagreeable as possible so as to sanctify it nothing would induce her for a moment to relinquish her holy duties in the household that sacrosanct institution which in so many women takes the place of all other duties, social and moral. She would have thought herself lost had she not on the same day, at the same time, polished the wooden floors, washed the tiles, cleaned the door-handles, beaten the carpets, moved the chairs, the cupboards, the tables. She was ostentatious about it. It was as though it was a point of honor with her— and after all is it not in much the same spirit that many women conceive and defend their honour it is a sort of piece of furniture which they have to keep polished a well waxed floor cold hard and slippery the accomplishment of her task did not make frau vogel more amicable she sacrificed herself to the trivialities of the household as to a duty imposed by god and she despised those who did not do as she did, those who rested and were able to enjoy life a little in the intervals of work. She would go and rouse Louisa in her room when from time to time she sat down in the middle of her work to dream. Louisa would sigh, but she submitted to it with a half-shamed smile. Fortunately, Christophe knew nothing about it. Amalia used to wait until he had gone out before she made these interruptions into their rooms, and so far she had not directly attacked him; he would not have put up with it. When he was with her he was conscious of a latent hostility within himself; what he could least forgive her was the noise she made; he was maddened by it; when he was locked in his room, a little low room looking out on the yard, With the window hermetically sealed, in spite of the want of air, so as not to hear the clatter in the house, he could not escape from it. Involuntarily, he was forced to listen attentively for the least sound coming up from below, and when the terrible voice which penetrated all the walls broke out again after a moment of silence, he was filled with rage. He would shout, stamp with his foot, and roar insults at her through the wall in the general uproars no one ever noticed it they thought he was composing he would consign frau vogel to the depths of hell he had no respect for her nor esteem to check him at such times it seemed to him that he would have preferred the loosest and most stupid of women if only she did not talk to cleverness honesty all the virtues when they make too much noise his hatred of noise brought him in touch with Leonard. In the midst of the general excitement, the boy was the only one to keep calm and never to raise his voice more at one moment than another. He always expressed himself correctly and deliberately, choosing his words and never hurrying. Amalia, simmering, never had patience to wait until he had finished. The whole family cried out upon his slowness. He did not worry about it nothing could upset his calm respectful deference christophe was the more attracted to him when he learned that leonard intended to devote his life to the church and his curiosity was roused with regard to religion christophe was in a queer position he did not know himself how he stood towards it he had never had time to think seriously about it he was not well enough educated and he was too much absorbed by the difficulties of existence to be able to analyze himself and to set his ideas in order. His violence led him from one extreme to the other, from absolute facts to complete negation, without troubling to find out whether in either case he agreed with himself. When he was happy, he hardly thought of God at all, but he was quite ready to believe in him. When he was unhappy, he thought of him, but did not believe. It seemed to him impossible that a God could authorize unhappiness and injustice. But these difficulties did not greatly exercise him. He was too fundamentally religious to think much about God. He lived in God. He had no need to believe in Him. That is well enough for the weak and worn, for those whose lives are anemic. They aspire to God as a plant does to the sun. The dying cling to life, but he who bears in his soul the sun and life, what need has he to seek them outside himself? End of section twenty three.